Would you like to know more about how pharma manufacturing works? Every month, we bring you an insider conversation with our experts here at Lonza, with our partners and leaders in the industry. Hi, my name is Martina Hesteritsova, and this is A View On, a podcast brought to you by Lonza. Every single injection you've ever received has gone through testing for endotoxin contamination. The so-called bacterial endotoxin test, or BET, is an assay that is performed to detect endotoxins. These are parts of bacterial membranes. And if these enter the bloodstream or spinal fluid of a patient, it could lead to a harmful reaction or even death. So it's really important to test everything for them. There are several methods available for endotoxin testing, with some relying on animal products and some moving towards non-animal-derived materials. These tests are mandatory for all injectable products, implantable medical devices, or even artificial joints, with the majority relying on blue blood of horseshoe crabs. Here at Lonza, we are very lucky to have Alan Bergensen, a global subject matter expert on endotoxin testing. Hi, Alan. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Martina. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. So could you briefly summarize for us who you are and what you do? Okay, well, my name is Alan Bergenson. I am the Global Subject Matter Expert for Testing Solutions. Uh, and in that role, I advise customers in the company on endotoxin testing uh, issues. I've got nearly 40 years of experience with endotoxin detection of pharmaceutical products and medical devices. And going further, I'm the former president of the Capital Area Chapter of the Parental Drug Association. Um, I'm the immediate past chair of the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission Horseshoe Crab Advisory Panel. And I'm also a member of the IUCN, uh, that's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, uh, Horseshoe Crab Working Group. Wow, you're quite busy there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... Before we dig deep into the important role horseshoe crabs play in ensuring drug safety, I want to ask you something a little bit more personal. I can see that you're very passionate about these animals. Um, How often do you see them? I think the spawning season is right behind the corner, right? There are several of us who are going on our own uh, down to Kitsumic Beach on the Delaware Bay to watch the horseshoe crabs spawning. Now, they spawn at high tide, and the best spawning is during the full moon. So... (laughs) Uh, One unfortunate aspect of spawning is that many of the horseshoe crabs uh, get flipped over and they get stranded. And the next day they will bake upside down in the hot sun and they die. So our purpose is to go out uh, the next morning and comb the beaches and flip them over. You you just pick them up. They won't they won't sting you. They won't hurt you. They won't bite you. They won't even pinch you. How heavy are they, though? Uh, male, males are smaller than females, so they'll weigh a couple of pounds, mm-hmm. but you can get some big females that weigh maybe five, six pounds. Oh. Um, so they, they, they can get big. Um, so you just flip them over and you put them on the edge of the water and just let them crawl away. And, uh, there's a story that I tell because I've been actually been doing this for many years. Um, actually I've been doing it for 60 years now. Wow. Uh, when I was three years old my mom finally let my dad take me fishing with him. Uh, so we, we went down to the New Jersey shore uh, before dawn 
And then we went with some friends of his and we went surf fishing. And when he brought me out there, my job was to find all of the flipped over horseshoe crabs and turn them back over and put them in the water. Now, my dad's friends, you know, don't do that. No, no, no. Kill them. They they eat the bait. They eat they eat this and that. And they're, they're bad. And my dad just said, no, Alan, you flip them over and you put them back in the water. It's the right thing to do. And so I've been doing that since I was three years old. And I'm so that's 60 years now. Uh, and I do it every year. Whenever I go down to the beach and I see a horseshoe crab uh, stranded, I make sure that it's still alive. And then I flip it over and I walk it down and put it next to the water. That's a wonderful story. Thanks for sharing this with us. Oh, glad to. Glad to. Right. Now let's get back to business. What is the importance of endotoxin testing? Uh, endotoxin is a critical quality attribute for any uh, product that is going to be uh, injected or implanted into your body. That includes drugs, vaccines, IV solutions, stents, artificial joints, anything that could be uh, implanted into your body that might extract endotoxin, which is something that is ubiquitous in nature. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. It's on our skin. It's in the water we drink. Uh, our gut has pounds of endotoxin in it. However, nanogram amounts, that's one billionth of a gram, is enough to make you sick. A little bit more is enough to kill you. So it's, it's that big dichotomy uh, about endotoxin that we really have to make sure that our products or any pharmaceutical product is below detectable levels. So, uh, and to go into a little bit of history there, uh, the LAL test has been around commercially since the early 1970s. Before LAL, we had the rabbit pyrogen test, and that came about around 1940, um, right around World War II, because they needed a lot of uh, injectable drugs at the time for the effort. Um, so it literally stayed the same from 1940 until 1972. And in that, you injected three rabbits into their ear, and then you looked for a rise in temperature. With the advent of LAL, you were now able to not only test final product, you were able to test in process to make sure that you didn't get any contamination during your manufacturing process, and also all your raw materials. So uh, before, it was common to have products fail at the end of the manufacturing process. Now we have it engineered so that a properly manufactured pharmaceutical product under good manufacturing practices is ever rejected at the end because we test raw materials in process and final product. You mentioned that we started with rabbit tests yes. and we currently use LAL. Yeah. Could you explain what this means? What is LAL? Okay. Oh, sure. LAL is the limulus amoebocyte lysate that was discovered, as I said, back in the 60s, and it was commercialized in the 1970s. But before the rabbit pyrogen test, uh, there was nothing. And a physician literally had to uh, gauge the risk to your health uh, of giving you an injection. You were literally taking your life into your hands uh, by getting an injection because of something called injection fever. So that's caused by endotoxins. Now people can go to the local pharmacy and get a flu shot and they don't even think twice of it. That's how much LAL has improved the, the health system around the world. And that's, that's something that um, few people realize that every person in the world that has ever received an injection is touched by the horseshoe crab because of LAL. So that's 7.6 billion people. And you mentioned that every batch gets 
tested. That's correct. Does this mean that you pick randomly every thousand vial and test that, or or do you need less material or more material? Actually, it's it's three vials from every lot. So if you if your lot is a hundred vials, or if it's a million vials, you're still picking three vials from that lot that represents the beginning, middle, and end of the manufacturing process. Ah. Uh, so it, it's the same same number of vials, no matter how many you have. How did the Operation Warp Speed change these numbers? Is it still the same also for vaccine manufacturing? It's it's absolutely the same. And there were there was some controversy early uh, about how Operation Warp Speed and the efforts to manufacture and deliver uh, COVID vaccines around the world and how that would affect LAL supply and ultimately the horseshoe crab. Uh, and we actually did the math where we estimated that the average number of vials per lot would be 100,000. And so it would increase an extra demand of maybe one day's production for all three LAL manufacturers. And if you actually look at the number of tests that are done now, which is approximately 70 million per year, then you did the math, it's approximately a 0.2% increase in demand. So it's, it's not much at all. Thanks to you, I'll be thinking about horseshoe crabs as I get my COVID jab. <laughs> yep, and that's exactly it. Uh, and that's one thing that I want folks to to understand and think about is it, because of the horseshoe crab, people aren't dying after getting an injection from injection fever, which was fairly common back then. So uh, it, it's just amazing. And when we talk about horseshoe crabs and blue blood and how this gets transformed into LEL, could you Walk us through the process. How does the blood become LAL? Okay, well, let's let's start from the from the very beginning, where uh, where we do the collection process. The collection starts with the animal itself, the, the Limulus polyphemus, or the North American horseshoe crab. So our our fishermen go out at night and they collect at night because we want to keep the crabs out of the heat um, and out of the direct sunlight. So at night. Uh, if you've ever been on the ocean at night, it's chilly. Uh, it, it could be very hot on the beach, uh, but when you get out on the water, it's chilly, and you might even have to wear a jacket. So we keep them. We keep them at about ambient temperature, and then we bring them back uh, after collection. We bring them to the docks, and they're put into uh, a trailer that is also set at approximately uh, ambient water temperature. Then we take the short trip to our Salisbury, Maryland uh, collection facility. Uh, and then the, the crabs are unloaded and put into a, a, a holding room, which is, again, about ambient water temperature. And there the crabs are inspected uh, and, uh, and sorted. Now, we only bleed healthy, vigorous horseshoe crabs. It's just like you giving blood. The Red Cross or, or any other blood agency in the world will not collect blood if you're sluggish or sick. So then we, we clean the horseshoe crab. We bring them into the blood collection room. And there, uh, and again, I'll make the uh, comparison to donating blood. The uh, collector will swab your arm. And, and this time we swab the membrane with an, with an iodine solution to, to sanitize it. And then a needle is injected into a membrane um, and the blood begins to flow. Now, horseshoe crabs only have one type of blood cell, the amoebocyte, and that contains their primitive immune system uh, with that clotting cascade. So we, we collect the cells and we pour off the supernatant, 
and then we we lice them and the, the horseshoe crabs are then inspected again to make sure that they're vigorously moving the shell is marked uh, with a little dimple on the right side for uh, even years and on the left side for odd years. That way we don't bleed the horseshoe crab twice in a year. And then some of those crabs are also marked with a tag from the U.S. Department of Fish and Wildlife uh, for population studies. Mm-hmm. And then the crabs are put back into the holding room and then go back on that same truck at ambient water temperature and then go back to uh, to the dock. And the fishermen then load them onto their boats, and that occurs in less than 24 hours. So the, the animals are actually out of the water for less than 24 hours. That's a pretty fast trip, huh? It, it, it's a fast trip, and horseshoe crabs can actually live uh, days uh, out of the water. I'm also curious, why is the blood of these crabs blue? And what about LAL? Does this product uh, stay blue as well, or is it of a different color? Our blood is red. Uh, because we have iron-based hemoglobin. They have hemocyanin, which is copper-based. And so that's that's actually in the the liquid. The, the cells themselves are white. And ah. when you spin them down, you have a nice blue liquid on the top and a, uh, and a, and a white pellet on the bottom of the centrifuge tube. Uh, and so when you actually make the lysate, the lysate becomes a, uh, a white opalescent solution. I also have one probably a little bit basic question, but how do the endotoxins get into the drug product in the first place? Okay. Um, as I said earlier, endotoxin is ubiquitous in nature. It, it's on every surface there is. It's on your skin. It's on environmental surfaces. It's on manufacturing equipment. It's, uh, it's, it's all over the place, but mostly it's in the process water that comes into a, a plant. Um, drinking water has lots of endotoxin in it and you can drink endotoxin, but it won't hurt you. You shower with it and you breathe it and it won't hurt you. It only hurts you when it gets into your bloodstream, but it, it can also come in from raw materials used in, in manufacturing. Uh, and it can also come in from contamination by, uh, by the manufacturing staff themselves. So that's why aseptic processing is absolutely critical uh, to prevent contamination of products and testing all of your raw materials and water. And uh, you mentioned that we have been basically moving from the older types of testing where rabbits were involved towards LAL. And the tests have been developed in the 70s. Mm-hmm. I wonder what is next in endotoxin testing? Ah, and this is a very exciting thing for me, too, because it, it's actually one of the reasons why I came to the company. Uh, our next uh, step is recombinant products. It's always good to try to remove animals from a process uh, whenever whenever you can. Years ago, um, there was a researcher at the National University of Singapore, uh, Lin Ding, uh, and her husband, Bo Ho, Um, who developed a recombinant product using factor C from the mangrove horseshoe crab of Singapore, also known as Carcina scorpius rotundicata. Uh, the, the story goes that she wanted to buy LAL, but uh, it was her small laboratory and it was very expensive. So she decided to try to make something. And she actually took the gene for factor C from the horseshoe crab genome and put it into a, an expression system and was able to make factor C. And so she came up with uh, recombinant factor C as an endotoxin detection method, which Lonza, 
uh, at the time was very interested in. And so our scientists worked with Ding and Ho to develop the assay into uh, what we now call pyrogene. And we were the first company in the world to commercialize recombinant factor C in 2003. Now uh, we are working uh, to get it um, the assay incorporated into the, the world's pharmacopoeias. And uh, it just so happens that in January of this year, the European pharmacopoeia has made recombinant factor C a compendial test method. So it is, it is on par with, uh, with LAL testing in Europe. Uh, we're still working with the United States Pharmacopoeia, as well as the Japanese Pharmacopoeia for incorporation. Uh, and we've been uh, working with them and, and talking to them for, for a few years. And now we, we, are, we are actively selling and promoting uh, the use of recombinant factor C pyrogene in the world. That's really inspiring towards an animal-free future in endotoxin testing. How far do you think we are from global from complete global adaptation to the new type of testing well that depends on on our customers who are who are the the ultimate users of of the of the assay it was a little slow going it was a little disappointing at first uh but then we had forward-looking companies like eli Lilly and company who has sustainability in their corporate mandates uh in their corporate policies 2018, Eli Lilly did a filing with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, as well as the European authorities, with the use of pyrogene for their Mgality product, which is on the market uh, around the world. And it was the first product that was approved using pyrogene uh, as an endotoxin-released release assay. And there are several more now that that are that are that are coming that that customers are working on and filing with the regulatory agencies. Customers are, are definitely beginning to use it, and they're also using it for in-process testing, uh, all their water systems and, and raw materials. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. This was amazing. I learned so much, and I believe that our, our listeners learned quite a lot as well. I think we can all agree that Alan's passion for horseshoe crabs and endotoxin testing is contagious. But today's episode has come to an end. I'm already looking forward to welcoming you in a month with more exciting science and technology stories. Bye for now.